I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and I will be reading from verses 1 through 12. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Fathers, we look to your word now. Help us to believe what is there. Help us to understand what is there in order that we might love you more and live for your glory. Accomplish your purposes through your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, up until this point in Mark's gospel, as we've seen, Jesus hasn't faced much opposition. He experienced demonic opposition in chapter 1, but there hasn't been really any opposition coming from the people. No one has outright opposed him up until this point. That's about to change. Basically, from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, we encounter opposition to Jesus. And it ends in chapter 3, verse 6, with these specific religious leaders, the Pharisees, in verse 6 of chapter 3, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So this whole section is the opposition against Jesus, and it ends with these religious leaders wanting to destroy Jesus. And it begins here in chapter 2 because Jesus is going to say something in these verses that will be extremely controversial. 
Because he will say something that can only be subscribed to God. Up until this point, most people in Mark's gospel probably view Jesus simply as a prophet, a great prophet. He preaches God's word. He he even heals people. He casts out demons. But what he does here in chapter 2 is display an authority that only God himself has, and we're going to see that this morning. Now, I've given you an outline in your bulletin to, to help you follow along. And the first thing that I want us to see in this passage from verses 1 through 12 is a persistent faith, a persistent faith. We're told in verse 1 and 2 that Jesus returns home. This great crowd finds out that he's at home and they, they've gathered together at the place where he is and we're told that there's no more room, not even at the door. Now we have to ask, who, who might have made up this crowd? Well, most likely his disciples would have been there. We know from the passage that there were these specific scribes that were there, these religious leaders. There was probably skeptics. There was probably seekers There was probably true followers of Jesus. There were probably people who were simply there looking for healing. It's a diverse crowd. But try to imagine placing yourself into the context of what's happening. Remember, it's not Canada. Jerusalem, Israel is is hot. Imagine the heat. Imagine all the people around you, the sweat and stickiness that is taking place. Yet there everyone is hanging on every word that Jesus is preaching to them. And then in verse 3, we're told of these four men. They just kind of show up out of nowhere. And they're carrying a paralytic, a cripple, with the intention of bringing him to Jesus for healing. But as verse 4 tells us, there's a bit of an obstacle. They couldn't actually get to Jesus. The, The space was so packed out, they had no way of actually reaching Jesus. So what do they do? Well, they did something quite surprising. They gained access to the roof. The homes in Israel would have been made very different than our homes. So they they would have gained access to the roof and they actually removed the roof. They made an opening and they let down the paralytic man. Now you can try to imagine the scene. People are packed in. Jesus is preaching. And all of a sudden you begin to hear a noise above you. Dirt and branches begin to fall on you as you're trying to listen to Jesus. These roofs were were made of wood and branches and and dirt, and, and they were packed down about two feet. If anything, you're there in the audience, and you're probably frustrated. You're here to hear Jesus, and yet all this ruckus is happening above you on the roof. But these men continue to dig. They continue to dig and they continue to make a way in order to bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. They're determined. They won't go home without making every effort to get this man to Jesus. Now, we need to ask, what does all this mean? What's the significance of this? What was the meaning of their actions? Well, I think the answer lies within what Jesus saw, with what Jesus saw. 
How did Jesus interpret their actions? What did he see according to the passage? We'll look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith. You see, what was driving their actions was their faith. Faith can often be a hard word to define. It can simply mean belief. It can mean trust, dependence, confidence in something. If we were to to define faith in this passage, it would probably be quite simple. You see, these men probably don't have the understanding that you and I have when it comes to placing our faith in Jesus. They probably don't fully grasp who Jesus is. And yet they have faith in Jesus to a degree in which they believe that he can actually do something for this paralyzed man. And so faith in this passage, as Christopher Ashe defines it, I think it captures it well, it's someone in need and has a conviction that Jesus is the one to turn to for that need. Now I don't think faith should ever end there. But for many people, probably some of us in this room, this is how faith began for us. We had a need. And for some reason, we, we believed, we, we had a reason to turn to Jesus because for some reason we believed that he could actually meet that need in our lives. And since then, our, our faith has grown, it's, it's developed, it's deepened, and, and now it's not just seeing Jesus as meeting our needs, but also treasuring and loving Jesus. But sometimes faith is simply as small as what we see here. I have a need, and I believe that Jesus can meet this need. But there's something else about their faith that's also profound. It's persistent. It's persevering. If we were writing this script in Mark, the story would probably end for us at verse 4 with a different ending. You see, when we saw how difficult it was to get to Jesus, we would most likely just decide to go back home. Maybe come back tomorrow. Or we might even blame Jesus for not making this a priority. But these men won't be put off by any obstacles. They don't have any excuses. They won't allow any excuses to prevent themselves from getting to Jesus. They believe Jesus can change this man's circumstance, and so they persist. You see, they probably would have got pushback from the crowd when they began to tear the roof open. But that didn't matter. Because they had a persistent, determined faith. You know, I've met a lot of people who express some sort of faith in Jesus, but they come up with a thousand reasons and obstacles and excuses for why they're really not all that committed, for why they're not persistent in their pursuit of Jesus. For why they don't have that persistent, persevering faith. It's a difficult season in life. My my job demands so much of me. The church hurt me at one point in my life. My spouse doesn't really like it when I'm all in to Jesus. 
It's almost as though we expect Jesus to make it absolutely easy for us to follow him. But if you read the Gospels, Jesus often makes it difficult. He intentionally puts up roadblocks. He speaks in parables so that only those who are humble, who have ears to hear and eyes to see, actually understand. He tells them they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. If they want to follow him, we have to realize how offensive that would have been for Jewish people. It's as though he wants to make sure that those who follow him are those who have a faith that is persistent, that perseveres, a faith that really desires to seek out Jesus. You know, in one sense, it's so opposite of how so many churches operate today. For many churches, the mindset is to make it as easy as possible for someone to come to Jesus. You see, Jesus could have made this situation easier for these men. He knew they were coming. He could have come out to them. He could have demanded the people clear the way. But he didn't do any of that. These men got to Jesus because they persisted in their faith. What about us? What kind of faith do you have? Are you always able to find obstacles, barriers, excuses for why you really won't give yourself fully to Jesus and his people? To really get to him. It was Jesus who said, if you seek me, You'll find me. So in these men, we see this persistent faith. The second thing we see in this passage is a surprising declaration. These men bring Jesus to this paralytic with the hope that Jesus is going to heal him. But instead of healing him, Jesus declares something that would have startled, surprised everyone in that room. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now you have to wonder what this man was thinking at this moment. He came to Jesus for healing, and instead Jesus, at first at least, decides to forgive him of his sins. Was he surprised? Maybe he might have even been offended you got to wonder what his four buddies were thinking at that moment. We did all of that to bring him to you, Jesus, for healing, not to forgive him of his sins. You see, it almost seems like Jesus' words are irrelevant to the situation. This man's a cripple. He's not a rebellious criminal. But I think in this moment, Jesus is teaching us what this man's greatest need is. He's teaching us what our greatest need is. You see, what every human needs more than anything else isn't physical well-being, though that is wonderful, but what we need fundamentally is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus wants to get to the source of the problem. The source is not his paralysis. The source 
is his sin. I remember when I was, went to Honduras for, I think, two, three weeks as a basketball team, and we were playing against these other competitive teams in Honduras. We got to play against some professional teams. It was a lot of fun. And one of the missionaries that was there with us, he was actually a sports therapist. And for about several days, I was getting these brutal headaches. And I was feeling this pressure in my, my head, and so I kept massaging my head, hoping the pain would go away. And then I went and told him what was going on. And he said to me, well, let me look at your arm. And I was like, okay, that's not my head, but sure. And he started working on my arm and he said, your arm is extremely tight. Okay. (laughs) And then he started to massage this one spot on my arm. And I kid you not, within seconds, the pain in my head went away. He knew, he understood that there was a direct connection with the body from my arm to the pain I was feeling in my head. He went to the source of the problem. And that's precisely what Jesus does here with this man. He goes to the source of the problem. You see, the patient dying of cancer, though he needs physical healing, his greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's not all that loving. That doesn't sound very loving. You're not caring for the the most important need at that very moment. And if, if you think that, it probably means that you think that this man's greatest problem is his cancer, but it's not. This man's greatest problem, his greatest need, your greatest problem, your greatest need, my greatest problem, my greatest need is that we have sinned against the Creator, the One who has made us in His image. You see, in the Bible, sickness and sin have a relationship. Hear this. All sickness is a result of sin. Now, I don't mean that if you're sick, it's because you specifically sinned in a certain manner. So if you get a fever and a cold, it's not because you stole from the cookie jar the night before. Though there are times where this is true, where there is a direct correlation between sin and sickness. For example, alcoholism leads to liver failure. My grandfather's alcohol abuse killed him physically. Sexual promiscuity often leads to things like HIV. So there is a direct correlation between sin and sickness. But most often, our sicknesses, our diseases, are simply a result of living in a fallen world that's in decay, regardless of whether or not you specifically sinned in that moment. It's sin in the world, capital S sin, big S sin in the world, that manifests itself in all these different forms of decay in our world. And this is why in the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah, the eradication of sin is simultaneously the eradication of sickness. Or when you come to the end of the story, in Revelation 21, sin has been defeated, and we're told that with sin being defeated, so death is no more, and neither is there any pain anymore. Because sin 
has been eradicated. You see, Jesus' words to this paralyzed man aren't irrelevant. Whether this man realizes it or not, what he needs more than anything else, what you and I need more than anything else, is to have our sins forgiven. The reason our hospitals are full of people isn't because of sin, or isn't because of sickness, but sin. The reason our marriages fall apart are not because of difference in preference. It's because of sin. The reason why there's falling out between children and parents is because of sin. The reason no matter where you live, wherever you live in the world, there is political corruption. And the reason is because of sin. The reason why there's war is because of sin. The reason there's injustice is because of sin. The reason there's racism is because of sin. The reason there's poverty is because of sin. The reason there's famine is because of sin. The reason there's earthquakes, tsunamis, is a result of sin. All of these things are a result of living in a sinful, decaying world. And this is why the preaching of the gospel to a sinful world is the greatest need for human beings. Yes, we need to love and care for people's physical needs because we are bodily creatures. I in no way am promoting some form of of heretical Gnosticism that says to us that your soul is somehow more important than your body. That is not true. We are full creatures. We are bodily creatures. God made our bodies good. And what's necessary for our bodies to be redeemed, for our bodies to be resurrected, is the forgiveness of sins. There's a direct correlation between the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of our bodies. So yes, we need to care for the whole person. But we must never forget That the greatest need of every human being and the greatest need of this paralyzed man is the forgiveness of sins. And may God kill me the day when I preach anything otherwise. So Jesus pronounces the forgiveness of sins to this man. And it's at this moment where we do see the response of a specific group that was there, the scribes. These scribes are are some of the religious leaders in Israel. And this is the first moment of opposition that Jesus has with humans in Mark's gospel. But notice in the passage that their response to Jesus isn't visible. They don't object verbally. It's what they're thinking in their hearts. Look at verse 6 and 7. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their objection isn't wrong. Their theology is right. The problem is 
their hearts are hardened to who Jesus truly is. You see, they are right to say that only God has the authority to forgive sins, but they are wrong to conclude, therefore Jesus can't. They know that in Jesus pronouncing the forgiveness of sins, he's assuming the very role of God. He is, in one sense, assuming to be God with those very words, your sins are forgiven. You see, you have to think about how shocking this would have been for Jesus to forgive a man all of his sins. For example, if Anthony deceived me, and he came to me, and he, and he apologized, and I said, you know, I forgive you for sinning against me, that would be totally fine. But if Anthony decided to deceive all of you, and I went up to him and said, your sins are forgiven, all of you would be like, what are you talking about? He hasn't apologized to me. What authority do you have, Peter, to pronounce forgiveness over Anthony when it wasn't, it wasn't you he wronged? He wronged me. You see, all of us would think that that is absolutely absurd. None of us have the authority to forgive another person their sins in regards to them sinning against other people. But that's what Jesus does here. C.S. Lewis, in writing in Mere Christianity, talks about this in regards to the claims of Jesus when it comes to him being God. And this is what he says. One part of the claim, that is Jesus being God, tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself, unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity, that is stupidity, is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. See, in the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as silliness and conceit, unrivaled by any other character in history. If Jesus is not God, then him pronouncing forgiveness of sins to other people is, as C.S. Lewis describes it, silliness and the highest level of conceit, arrogance. But if he is God, then he says, it's as though he understands this because 
His laws are fundamentally broken. It's his love that is wounded in every sin. That's precisely what Jesus does here in this passage. Because that's precisely what God can do because all sin is fundamentally against God. See, when Anthony sins against me, he hasn't broken my law. He's broken the law of God. You see, in these words, Jesus is indirectly declaring himself to be God. And the scribes know this. And this is why they, in their hearts, accuse him of blasphemy. But it's at this very moment in the narrative where Jesus proves his divine prerogative, or he proves his divine authority. And so we go from this surprising declaration, your sins are forgiven, to now him showing that he has the authority to do such a thing. He has divine authority. These scribes are questioning in their hearts. They're accusing Jesus of blasphemy. And Jesus, in response, will prove his divine authority by exposing them and also healing the paralytic. So look at verse 7 and 8. So here they are in verse 7 objecting. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now you can only imagine their faces when Jesus said this to them. We so easily miss the shock, but that would have struck at this moment. How does he know that we're questioning him in our hearts? How could he perceive this about us? You see, this should have been enough for them to realize that the man they were questioning wasn't merely a man, for he knew what was in their very hearts, but the hardness of their hearts prevented them from acknowledging who Jesus was. You see, you and I, we make judgments every day about people. And I don't mean in a judgmental spirit, but we make judgments all the time. We can't avoid that based upon what we hear and see with our eyes. We, we hear the tone of someone's voice and we conclude, oh, that was, that was from a place of arrogance or, or anger. We see their facial expression and, and they're either looking down upon me or they're embracing me. We, we hear the very words they say and we conclude, well, that was offensive or that was really kind. And it's, it's from those observations that we make that we can conclude to a degree the heart motives and intentions of a person. But often we're wrong in those judgments. But Jesus is never in need of looking at appearances. He's never swayed by appearances. He sees into the heart of every human being. This is his divine prerogative. John Chrysostom says this, he's an early church father, the scribes asserted that only God could forgive sins, yet Jesus not only forgave sins, but showed that he also had another power that belongs to God alone. 
the power to disclose the secrets of the heart. One wonders whether, when this happened, whether all of a sudden all of these Old Testament passages came into the minds of the scribes because they knew the Old Testament well. You have to wonder if they, they thought of 1 Kings 8.39 when, when Solomon is dedicating the temple to the Lord and he says this to God in his prayer, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and, act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Or maybe Jeremiah 17.10 came into their mind. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see, Jesus does what God alone is able to do. He exposes what's truly in the heart. But he doesn't end there. He reveals that he knows what they're thinking, but then he proves his divine authority to forgive sins by healing this paralyzed man. Look at verse 9 to 11. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He begins by asking them a question. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, and take up your bed and walk? In one sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to visibly prove that. You see, the the predominant mindset amongst the Jews at this time was that sickness was always a result of one's individual sin. And therefore, if one had truly been forgiven, one would also experience healing. That's why, for example, in John chapter 9, verse 1 to 3, Jesus passes by this man born blind. And this is what we're told. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So from a human perspective, It was harder to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, because that's what the Jews would expect if someone had truly been forgiven. So for Jesus to to say, rise, and take up your bed, and walk, it would expose Jesus, either as one who had such an authority to forgive sins, or as a fraud. Yet the reality is, For Jesus, neither were harder or easier. In one sense, we could say the forgiveness of sins was harder in a human sense because the forgiveness of sins is going to cost him his own life. 
But because of his divine prerogative and, and authority, he's able to do both. Now it's in verse 10 where Jesus explains the purpose of the miracle. As he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. You see, the proof that he has the divine authority to forgive sins is that he can simply tell a cripple to walk, and he walks. I think in this story, you, you see a foreshadowing of God's greater redemptive plan. What I mean by that is this. The man's sins being forgiven precedes the man's physical healing. In the same way, all of redemption follows a similar pattern. Jesus in his death will do everything that is necessary in order that we might know the forgiveness of sins. Yet for many of us who have experienced the forgiveness of sins, you and I, we also know the reality of sickness and disease, even though we know the forgiveness of sins. But in Jesus' return, he will finally eradicate sickness and disease precisely because sin was dealt with already in his first coming. In other words, the forgiveness of sins always precedes healing from sickness and disease. And I don't mean that that means if you experience the forgiveness of sins, you will not experience sickness and disease in this life. No, most of us in this room will die from sickness and disease, but it will not have the final word. We will experience resurrection healing. You see, here in this story, the, the crowd, the scribes, but also you and I are being confronted. We're being confronted with what our greatest need is. Friend, your greatest need, your greatest problem isn't probably what you think it is. We often make the wrong diagnosis. I've been to the doctor several times where they have made the wrong diagnosis. Your greatest problem is that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness from God. And not just forgiveness from those you've hurt in your life. You need forgiveness from the one you've ultimately sinned against. The God who in love created you to know him. The God whom you have broken his commands. And this is why you must turn to Jesus. Because he is the God who created you. He's the one you've ultimately sinned against. Every time I sin against my wife, or against my family members, or against another member in our church, though it is true that I have sinned against them, fundamentally, I have not sinned against them but God. Because it is His commands, His ways that I have disregarded. 
He's the one that you and I have ultimately sinned against. But like this paralytic, Jesus offers you forgiveness if you would but come to him. There is only one individual who has the authority to forgive a sinner. And his name is Jesus. You will not find forgiveness of sins anywhere else. You can strive to be a more morally upright person, but you still have a record of your sins that hangs over your head. There is no religious figure that you can turn to. There is no philosophy. There is no new age idea that can cure you from your sin. You need a pronouncement. You need a proclamation from the king of the universe. Your sins are forgiven. That's what you need. His name is Jesus. And Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, know this, rest in this. If you love Jesus, if you are someone who has repented of their sins and have put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then know that you can have absolute confidence that your sins are forgiven. Because you've turned to the one who has divine prerogative in forgiving you of your sins. He has absolutely, absolute authority to forgive you of your sins. So though you and I as followers of Jesus struggle with sin in this fallen world, remember that all of your sins have been forgiven by the one who has the authority to do so. And Jesus does not lie to his children. He has forgiven your sins, so trust him even in the days when you fall short daily of his glory. He is the one who can forgive you of your sins. Let's pray. Father, I ask that by your spirit you would convict but also save. You would cause us to feel the heaviness of our sin, but also the happiness of your mercy and forgiveness. Do that in our hearts this morning. Do that in any person's heart this morning, Lord, that does not know you. That they would come to you and truly believe that you are a God who delights to forgive that there is truly salvation found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Amen.